like me, making friends with shadows. Yes, I've seen me here before. Once more, dancing to the yellow, knocking on the night's door. Hello, and welcome to the Dialogue on Dialogue podcast. I am your host, Philip Recheck. In this podcast, I am seeking to share some of the interesting thoughts and ideas of people in my own locale. And in the grandiose style of grandiose introductions, I hope to make the world a better place, one conversation at a time. Well, hello. Welcome to Season 2 of Dialogue on Dialogue. And just a little bit of housekeeping. I am starting off with my most favorite guest, April Blesky Recheck. And we're going to be talking about some of the really exciting things she has going on right now. One of the things I learned from last season was you always need to do a mic check. So, April, can you say hello? Hello. Looks good to me. I think we'll be able to make this one work. Um, For those of you which you actually won't be able to see because it's coming down. But uh, we did a podcast with, I did a podcast with April last year and didn't do a mic check. And you can just hear me asking stupid questions and you can't hear her brilliant replies. So, you know, that's what it was all about is jumping right in with both feet and learning. So what I wanted to start off with this year, with season two, is if you could... Tell yourself, your younger self, one thing. What would you tell your younger self? Broadly defined. Broadly defined. <laughs> My younger self. Well, I would, I would answer that in, in more of a personal way and also in probably an intellectual way. Maybe they're combined. Uh, when I think about what we've talked about in the past with my mentors, uh, one thing I wish I could have told my younger self then, or which I wish my younger self realized was the amazing uh, mentoring that I had. And I don't know that I valued the historical ancestry, perhaps, or the genealogy uh, from which I was essentially. Yeah. And so for those people who don't know, you in high school worked with really some... Yep. I worked with David Licken and and I think I recognized then how amazing that was. Mm-hmm. Um, but then every year, the fact that I had that I could sit in an office with Ashland Caspi and be inspired by him looking at a book and pointing to exactly the page number he wanted to at any given moment and, and have David Buss's quotes in my head, little mm-hmm. quips, just clever, clever sayings. Uh, David Levinsky's wealth of knowledge. Every year, I'm more and more thankful for that. And I, I wish I had realized it when I, maybe I would have been way more intimidated if I had realized it. So maybe it's better that I didn't. Yeah. And so you had your background, you covered, I guess I don't know how, how, like how old as a field was behavior genetics? Was David Licken one of the founders? David Licken was one of the, he was one of the first behavioral geneticists. Yeah. And I I was just trading notes with somebody the other day about our favorite David Licken paper. 
Mine happens to be a chapter that was published, I believe, in 1992, What's Wrong with Psychology Anyway? And that has inspired me in a number of ways. It wasn't parental licensure. I, I enjoyed that too, but I was only 17 at the time. And that was a really good, that was a really provocative paper. And of course, as a 17-year-old, I was like, yeah, why don't we have a parental licensure? Um, I do qualify that a bit when I talk about it with my students. Like, let's think about reproductive freedom here. And, and as you've noted, ancestrally speaking, the human species has a lot more experience uh, gestating babies and raising babies than they do driving cars. Right. Uh, but in, in, in response to your question, I think on a more personal note, what I have always told my students, I've been very upfront with them, is if I had, if I could talk to my younger self, it would be to offer some kind of words that would transport me to the future where I could somehow be more comfortable with who I am and my body so I didn't spend as much cognitive energy thinking about things that were literally a waste of time, like how my stomach felt against my pants or, you know, just like wasted cognitive energy on body image issues and common in adolescence and common in young adulthood. But if there had been anything that I could have said to myself to help prepare me for the awareness that it, it was irrelevant in so many ways, yeah. I wish I could. And... I think we, you know, even with our own daughters, tried to, are closely monitoring. Because, yes, any, any signs of, yeah, which I'm not seeing any. Right, right. <laughs> not yet. Yeah. yeah. For it's better cool. or worse, right? No, I'm just kidding. Well, it's good. what I'm really excited to talk to you today about is, this is actually being recorded, recorded before the release, but you had an article accepted for um, an, uh, an upcoming article in Quillette the online journal or online magazine, magazine. Of yeah, where free thought lives. Right, exactly. So we have for a long time uh, both been big fans and kind of used it as a launchpad, uh, launchpad or, or talking points mm-hmm. on which to address rationally some of the difficult topics that are out there in the world. So with that said... Why don't you give us the background of what what made you want to submit this article or an article to yeah. Quillette? Okay. What made you think that hey, this this might be for me? And and you might maybe even talk about um, how because you had recently actually in the current issue of the Skeptic, you have an article which these are some of your the few non-peer-reviewed writings, kind of, kind writings. Of well, yeah. yeah, I a mean, different kind of peer-reviewed. Different kind of peer-reviewed. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That it's a, it's not You're right. uh, professional journals that eight people read your article yes. in full. Yes. Like this is a, a mass audience, and so you have to kind of flavor them a little yeah. differently. Yeah, that is. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? So you you publish in what is not a technically peer-reviewed source and yet now I have the potential for an article to be read by thousands of people and I have a fear of the comment stream <laughs> or the comment how that might be or what if there isn't a comment stream um, but yeah I a few months ago I wrote an article I had done a systematic review of the scholarly so-called scholarly literature or um, empirical studies 
making the case for therapeutic touch. So Reiki, in other words, mm-hmm. uh, and no surprise to people who are pretty scientifically oriented, the research is really poor. And instead of submitting to taking all, going through all the rigmarole of submitting to places like JAMA, mm-hmm. um, I went ahead and submitted to the skeptic. And I was really happy because I was in conversation with Michael Shermer, who yeah. I adore and yeah. um, idolize in many ways. So that was super exciting. Uh, and then to have that, it, it, it's almost more exciting for my family members to see my <laughs> to see my name in a magazine that they can get on the bookshelves at the bookstore right. or whatever. Right, something um, that we can read and not yeah. be like, what is that word? Yeah. So that's really fun. And then, but I think that really did open my eyes to being able to write in a more personal style, which. I have always been better at. I yeah, think. yeah. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, Christopher Ferguson released an article on Quillette about uh, uh, the replication crisis and bad data analysis in psychology. And I read it, and I and I have seen psychologists tackle that issue, those issues, with open arms. Yeah, I. Mean, I, I I have a lot of resources to use in my classes now to do a better job. I'm a better research mentor because of the initiatives that have come into place as a result of the replication crisis and, and um, degrees of freedom, uh, all, all that stuff. And But I read his paper, his article, which was great, really concise and very clear. And I was like, yeah, that's so true. Psychology has really addressed this. Yeah, can, but psychology... Can, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, can you actually... Because we have talked about the replication crisis before. Can you talk about... Like, what it the, is? Well, yeah, just talk about what kind of his... Arg- you want to just lay yeah, out his yeah. argument that he kind of laid out there in the article. Because yeah. it, it's relevant, and then even we can talk a little bit about it before yeah. we jump into the next yeah. part of it. Well, I think he's talked about the importance of, uh, within psychology, of doing really well-conducted studies, and even when we have conducted really well-designed and highly, highly, you know, big samples and so on, that sometimes effects don't replicate. In fact, a lot of times effects don't replicate. And they're in the most important set set of studies that was done. Researchers took 100 really big effects, not big effects, important effects that have yeah. been documented yeah. from top journals. And then they had people launch on to do replications. And uh, only about a third replicated. And the ones that replicated were at about half the size okay. of the effect. And, and this is associated with winner's curse. When something shows up, it, it's, it may not be the first time it shows up. Other people may not have found right. anything. But, of course, the one time it does show up, it gets published. And yeah. then if it's not really the real deal, it doesn't replicate. That said, there are effects that have replicated. For example, right. the finding that vaccines are not associated with autism mm-hmm. has replicated again and again and right. again in population, population samples. Yeah, yeah. yeah population-wide studies. So um, he was just going through that, and, and I was I was just struck because I have been relatively obsessed with psychologists and social scientists more generally, their conflation of correlation with causation. And I was like, that's the crisis that we have in front of us. And, yeah. I, and I, 
I've only found a few people who seem to care about it as much as I do. <laughs> One of them happens to be John Mueller. I think Beth Morling, who wrote a fabulous research methods textbook, probably has a, a bit of a soapbox on it, too, because her textbook is set up around that issue. Um, so I thought, I, I said, my, my gosh, a, a follow-up to this article is about correlation causation. And of course, you asked me, is there anybody qualified to write that article? And I was like, well, I'm not qualified to write for Colette. <laughs> um, that's what other people do. And then when I, uh, I, I had also just returned from the International Society for Intelligence Research Conference where I was surrounded by incredibly intelligent people. Of course, mm -hmm. people who are interested in intelligence tend to be pretty, pretty stinking intelligent. Yeah. Um, and I, so I tried to stop self-handicapping myself and, and make a go of it and, yeah. and write the essay and... So took it. why do you think that, I mean, I guess I know the answer, but maybe we can talk about it a little bit. Like, why does nobody care well, it's, about correlation? You're right. It's not, it's not that nobody cares about correlation versus causation. I think, and I haven't tested this hypothesis yet, but I think that one thing I wrote in the essay is that it's quite possible that a lot of scientists really do understand correlation versus causation. They understand that it's an issue. They teach it. They don't necessarily, depending upon who you have research methods with or who your mentor is, they don't necessarily spend a lot of time trying to catch students in, right. in action and applying that, that, that distinction, making sure that people fully understand what types of research designs allow for causal inferences and which do not. But I think in general, people, people recognize like, oh, yeah, that's a tough issue. Yeah. Um, but I think that they're relatively caught up in their own biases. So when I'm talking about a topic that I am really passionate about, I catch myself mm -hmm. succumbing to causal language. Right. I have the causal attributes in my, even though I don't have the experimental research to back it up, right. I'm thinking about it in a causal way. And when we're not holding ourselves to a really stringent standard and yeah. making sure that others are holding us to that standard, then it just, I, I think it gets really bad. Yeah. Dialogue on Dialogue podcast is going to make the world better one play, one conversation at a time. <laughs> Might be, I may not have that, that may not be an experimental uh, <laughs> statement that I'm making. Right. right. But every teacher operates under that same philosophy, yeah. so you're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> and I think your, your, your Colette article is really really relevant because when people say correlation causation like oh it's something else that's you know that's statistics that's you know stuff i don't understand but okay so one of the things i found really helpful that we recently were talking about was is when you talk about a correlation just straight up correlation and you say something is significant can you just define what that means and then okay. what was really helpful for me was when we were putting that in terms of a percentage of the say solution, you know, like when you're talking about accounted for. Yeah, exactly. Kind of yeah. Okay. So can you just tell okay. me like for the people okay. who are listening, who haven't had research methods or haven't had a statistics class since college, right? right. Okay. What does it mean when you say something is a correlation? Well, when we, yeah, when we say two variables are correlated, we're, and that is really just the first step in demonstrating that one variable causes another variable. So mm -hmm. you can say that two variables are correlated they co-vary. So as one goes up, the other tends to go up, positive correlation, or direct correlation, and as, or as one goes up, the other tends to go down, a negative or inverse correlation. Mm -hmm. uh, so your classic example might be 
SAT scores are correlated with high school GPA or college GPA. Sorry. Yeah. So this this generally is a it's a nice size correlation. Some people will say, well, high school GPA is a better predictor than the SAT. Well, high school GPA has a whole host of classes involved yeah. in it. And yeah. there's a good reason why high school GPA should be a good predictor. It's almost ironic that a three-hour test, the SAT, can predict high school G- high college GPA as well as it can. But whatever, let's say right. the correlation is 0.4, which is a lower bound estimate. Okay. So correlations range from negative one to positive one. Zero would be no correlation at all. So some people look at that 0.4 and they think, oh, that's... That's not, that's not even close to one. Yeah. But if you take 0.4 and you multiply it by itself, you get 0.16. And that why, gives you... Wait, why would you multiply it you, by Well, itself? that's giving you R squared. And so that's telling you that 16% of the variability in freshman GPA can be accounted for by variance in SAT score. Okay. So you have this sample of you know, 5,000 freshmen in college. Right. 16% of the variability in how they're doing in terms of their GPA right. can be accounted for by variance in their SAT scores. Right. That's that's a big deal. Right. It's a really big deal right. when you think about all the other factors that yeah, are associated with The individual with differences associated with every person. That's The circumstances, right. the classes they're taking, right. so many right. things. So and I, so I always tell my students, like you, you're accounting for 16% of the variability, 16% of the pie. Right. You, you're out in the public and people are like, a correlation of 0.4, that's not even quite strong. It's it's huge. And right. you're way better off than you would be at chance just trying to predict how well they're right. doing. Right. So correlations are, are super important. Now, significant is a different, a statistically significant is a different idea altogether. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the idea that you're, you, what you observe in your sample is unlikely to have happened by chance alone under the assumption that there actually isn't a correlation in okay. the real world. Okay. Of course, we never know the state of the real world, but we're always trying to make a statistical inference about, given the default of nothing right. going on, what's the likelihood that we would observe what we did? And that that logic is super difficult for students. Yeah. yeah. But, so, so it's more helpful to think about it, how big a correlation is in terms of variance accounted for. How much, right. how much of the variability can you account for with this variable in mind? Okay. Jumping into this, because I think actually your article does a really good job of laying out examples of why people should give a crap about this. And I think you, throughout this, you take on a lot of people's sacred cows, as it may be. <laughs> I just tried a couple. Well, but you, you did things that people probably are aware of, and, yeah. and just... Telling people just to whoa, hold on. Let's okay. let's okay. just make sure that what it is that you are claiming or the direction you're heading in this, you know, you're pouring a bunch of money into something. Is it? Do we know? Are, are you able to say that that's yeah. the direction something's going? Yeah. So, but before I get into that, just if you want to just kind of lay out, you talk about three different types of. What are the three things that you were talking about? Three criteria? Yeah, the the three criteria. Yeah, three criteria for something to be considered to cause something else. Okay. Okay, and I have to give credit where credit is due. I think the the person who laid this out best for me is Beth Morling in her research methods textbook that I use with my undergraduates. Uh, And I'm sure others do it in, in wonderful ways, but I really appreciate how she's done it. So the first criterion is covariance. Okay. One variable covaries with another, like we just talked about. Yeah. You have correlation. The second element 
to make the case that variable X actually causes variable Y is that variable X comes before variable Y. Okay. So, for example, um, maybe we have indicators of um, how much children are spanked in childhood, right. and then um, we follow up years later and we have measures of their intelligence. You get one measurement before the other. But just because one variable comes before another, that's not enough. That's, right. that's It's necessary, but it's not sufficient for saying that that variable causes another because you have to address confounds. You have to address alternative explanations right. for that association. Uh, and this usually happens via experimental design, right? okay. where you random, randomly assign people to different levels of that causal variable. In the case of spanking and later IQ scores, there are confounds that need to be addressed. Now, we're not going to run the experimental study where we randomly assign some parents to spank more right. or less than others right. because, well, there's choice involved, and that's right. the whole point. Right. The types of parents who spank might be different uh, in ways that also could account for children being less intelligent. Right. Or another possibility is that children who are less intelligent evoke more spanking from their parents and also grow up to be less intelligent. There right. are all kinds of confounds right. here. Right. So you need that You need that so-called experimental design of random assignment or in a natural experiment like twin and adoption studies right. they essentially have random assignment of sorts to share genes versus shared environment so that's a different type of experiment but it allows us to tease apart genes and environment right it's a special case um okay so that's so those are the three criteria yeah. right covariance temporal precedence x comes before y and then third elimination of a confounds via experimental design. Now, people have all kinds of savvy statistical techniques controlling for this variable or that variable, but even then, just because you think that you've addressed all possible confounds doesn't necessarily mean you have. Right. And so that's why people think of the experiment as the gold standard right. for demonstrating causality. And then you went on, and this is, was your own research, went on to look at what is your own field doing uh, yeah. in terms of uh, correlation versus causation. Yeah. And do you want to just talk about the couple methods that sure. you went to, sure. went after that? Yeah, and I, I know you want to talk about the couple specific examples I, I had after that. Okay, yeah. so the reason I mentioned that I've been kind of obsessed with correlation causation for a while, for you, right, has to yeah. have to hear about it all the time. <laughs> but essentially what has driven, what drove me to really start digging into what psychological scientists were doing was my own students. So I would, I would go through semester-long practice with correlation and causation and right. understanding research designs that allow for causal language versus not and what, what are, how do you recognize a causal phrase versus a non-causal phrase. And I would say to my students, now watch out. When you go do your research project, you have to read the literature and you have to catch it. And every semester, my students would come back and they would complete their annotated bibliographies and they would spit out this cause and effect language at me about like divorce, doing this to kids, and right. um, you know, being in a relationship makes people uh, drink more, drink less, all this causal language. And I was like, what are you doing? Right. Well, they're just repeating what they're reading. So my students and I went into, first we went into accepted posters that had been submitted and accepted at APS, the Association for Psychological Science. Uh, and we found that over 50% of those poster submissions that you accepted poster submissions that used cause and effect language did it without warrant. And this was like, I knew it, yeah. right? But I yeah. was so 
bummed at the same time. Well, we submitted it, of course, and, and the editor said, oh, well, posters, there's such a low threshold. If this happened in journal articles, that'd be a, that'd be a different story. Uh, so, of course, we went to the journals and we selected 11 pretty popular journals in psychology uh, and found that, on average, we looked through 660 different articles and this, we actually got the exact same percentage. Of course, a 95% confidence interval around it, but regardless, over 50% of those that use causal language, 53% to be exact, um, use that language without warrant, meaning they didn't have a research design right. that allowed them to make the causal inferences they were making. Well, it just so happens that research in medicine has shown that this is happening. Research in teaching and learning journals has shown that this is happening in education. Psychology is not alone. Right. Uh, and so then the question just becomes like, what is what is it? Is it right. are, are they conventions of language? Are we just not holding ourselves to a rigorous standard? Are we confused? Right. Maybe we're just confused. I don't know why. I don't know what's causing the yeah. completion of cognitive. Let's, then this is a great time to say, um, let's, let's take the, this was from the prior Quillette article about violent video games right. causing aggressive behavior or aggressive yeah. action. Can you kind of walk through, because people are like, okay, the scientists are doing this, but let's, let's put this in real world Let's studies. put it in a real world context. Okay, yeah. so let's say you read a, a research paper about, uh, let's talk about social media, social media use, mm-hmm. maybe a more relevant example, mm-hmm. okay, because... I'm not suggesting that I don't think social media could be having negative effects, mm-hmm. but we don't have a whole lot of experimental research to eliminate right. confounds. Okay? So, but you, there are a ton of studies out there that show that adolescents who engage in more social media use or mm-hmm. who spend more time on their phones also have higher depression. So even just the other day, I think I, I found, an, you know, I popped onto the news and there it was, social media use worsens depression, right? right? Worsens is a cause and effect language. What, what if people who are depressed, right? What if some third variable explains both worsening right. depression and more time on social media? So if you're just doing this study where you survey people about how much time they spend on social media and you survey them and measure their sleep or depression or whatever else it is, those are two measured variables. You haven't manipulated anything. You haven't addressed potential confound. And so if you make a causal interpretation about those data, you are telling more than, this is Barry Cooley's words, well, and then, of course, previously Nisbet's words, you're telling more than you know. Right? You're assuming the cause. It seems the obvious cause. You don't know what other confounds are lurking back there to yeah. explain the reason that association might otherwise exist. Does that help, or do you want to do the violent video games and aggression? No. Uh, let's actually just walk through... If you were going to do a, if let's say we are going to u- be able to use causal language, how would we set up a study yeah. that would actually answer the question that uh, yeah. social media, yeah. oh, too much social media uses causes depression yeah. or increases yeah. depression? Or okay. So what would an experiment look yeah. like? Yeah. Well, I think of, that's a really great question, right? Because some people would say, well, you can't just manipulate how happy people are, as people are, but... There are other studies out there that have used really clever short-term experimental designs to show an important effect. For example, I probably have told you about the study by um, Dunn and colleagues years ago. Actually, I don't think it was that long ago, maybe a decade ago, where they brought people in in the morning and they measured their happiness. 
And then they asked them to open an envelope. And these participants got a windfall. They either mm-hmm. got a windfall of $5 or $20. Right. I'm pretty sure those were the amounts, $5 yeah. or $20. And then they were randomly assigned. So they were randomly assigned one of the two windfall amounts, like right. just the surprise gift of money. And then they were randomly assigned to either spend it on themselves or go do something pro-social for somebody else with the money. And then at 5 o'clock that night, they called everybody to see how happy they were. And lo and behold, the people who spent money on somebody else pro-socially, like taking somebody out for coffee or buying a little gift for their mom or whatever they did, those people reported a positive change in happiness compared to those who um, did, did spent not the money, yeah, spent the money on themselves. Yeah. And... and Contrary to what you would expect, it didn't matter if it was $5 or $20. The amount didn't matter. It was how they spent it. The key part of that is if you have a big enough sample and you randomly assign them to do this or that, and then you have a difference between the two groups, at the end, you know it's because of your manipulation. Because they're just individual differences in the two groups. They balance themselves out. And so with social media, ideally, we would do something unethical, I, I suppose. Right. Um, you in would, order to You would have randomly assign people to... Facebook was in huge trouble for this because they actually... They wanted to look at emotional contagion on Facebook and they manipulated the types of feeds that people were given and, mm-hmm. and they did find that more positive feeds could provide some positive emotional contagion. Mm. Um, that was a little manipulation. Facebook right. users didn't really know what was going on and they took right. some heat for it, I think. Right. But... So we could randomly assign people to different amounts of social media use. Right. You, you can't let them choose. So we just have a few minutes left. I wanted to uh, touch briefly on your your work on microaggressions and yet another sacred cow that you went after in the article of some people. <clears throat> so why don't you just tell us about... and I, and I, and I want to just preface this by saying I think we're both of the mind that if we want to best solve issues of whether they're issues of depression or even racism or that it's best to know the true causes of things and not make up causes or infer causes that perhaps aren't there. Right. And I think that in some of your... Or not not clinging to a magic bullet. It be many, many factors. Exactly. So do you want to just tell me about what you were talking about within this article uh, as far as microaggressions yeah. and correlation yeah. and causation? Yeah. Well, and I, I try not to spend too much time talking about the idea of microaggressions themselves, but and I think a lot of people are familiar with the term, right. uh, you know, subtle or maybe not so subtle uh, insults or behaviors that can, that are, that are perceived as harmful. And that is kind of part of the definition that they are, they are behaviors or words, statements, questions that are perceived right. by the person receiving it as right. harmful. And I would say that in the last maybe less than 10 years, this term... Has exploded. Yeah. yeah. It started I, out in a racial context, but now it's used in many, many domains. And what, On a daily basis, actually. Right. What was it that kind of kicked it off, or how, how did how did we start talking about yeah. microaggressions? Is, or is that not was, even an area that you're? No, really... no. The, the 
The primary article that people usually look to was by Donald Wing Sue, Publishing American Psychologist, and I think 2007. Uh, and he introduced the term in the racial context, and it was in the you know, implications for counselors. Uh, so he wasn't the first person to use the term, I don't think, but he really brought it to psychologists' attention. Okay. And a more recent paper published by Scott Lilienfeld in Perspectives in Psychological Science offered a really comprehensive uh, critique of the microaggressions research paradigm. And I, like Scott Lilienfeld, would never argue that microaggressions don't occur and that people don't say harmful things or that racism doesn't still happen and, and is, is alive and well in some circles. The question is whether we understand much about this construct of mm -hmm. microaggression because it is an open concept. Right. Uh, and any other time we work with open concepts, like what do we mean by intelligence? Well, we start out by laying out whether you can measure it reliably and right. then can you connect it to behaviors and outcomes that you expect it to predict. Like our right. understanding of any concept is only as good as its measurement. How how really are we measuring microaggressions? Right. We aren't. Right. And that was the point of his, his article. So my lab and I have actually started try to try to tiptoe into this topic. Um, and one of the first things we did, well, I should I should say that that started out with a correlation versus causation concern. The research we did because at my university you can do a microaggression workshop once every couple of weeks. So there are there are workshop. And there are workshops like this everywhere. In fact, I'm guessing that a lot of freshman year, freshman students, first year students in college go through microaggression training where they are prepped on what they should or should not say, right. uh, among other things. And I, it is my impression that a lot of this, a lot of these endeavors are, they're premised on research that has documented a correlation between perceiving oneself as microaggressed against and mental health concerns. And that correlational, those correlational data have been perceived or interpreted as causal, that being microaggressed right. causes mental health issues or psychological maladjustment. Right. And as Scott Lilienfeld noted, and, and any personality psychologist would probably, you know, think as well, Negative emotionality or neuroticism, anxiety proneness, stress reaction, feelings of victimization and right. alienation, these personality temperament characteristics that you can measure very early on in life, well, they're associated with perceiving oneself as microaggressed against, and they're associated with mental health issues. So right. what if negative emotionality is a confound that is explaining that association? It means it, it raises the possibility that having these microaggression trainings are, are built on a false premise. Right. And hence are less likely to be effective than we would want them to be. For reducing racism, maybe, or reducing um, hurtful remarks. Right. Or I, I actually don't really know what the desired outcome is uh, of such trainings. Right. And I would say that most people, obviously, like you said, there are circles, but most people don't want to offend other people, right? I don't think most people are out to harm other people. But right. maybe some people think that is the case. Right. I'm starting to wonder if there is a subset of the population who just think that everyone is out to get everybody else or right. a subset of everyone. And I mean, I think you can get into the whole, it's all about power dynamics and hierarchies and so forth, which I don't necessarily want to jump into today. 
But what? Why not? I know. <laughs> Just kidding. But I think this also then leads to how do you go about? Sorry. Oh, it, I was going to talk about is, the research. Is, yeah, is the training that these people go through, is it actually counterintuitive based on, you know, like right. coddling of the American right. mind with Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt? Uh, I, but, yeah, I guess, um, I guess that's kind of what I was, what my students and I did is we uh, primed people to with the idea that some people say things that can be harmful without realizing it. Uh, some people we didn't prime at all. We just said people say things. Uh, and um, we had a third group, but the key thing is that in the, in the condition in which we had people who were primed with the idea that people say things, all kinds of things, sometimes they even say things that can be hurtful without realizing it. In that specific condition, when they subsequently rated how harmful ambiguous statements were, ambiguous mm-hmm. statements like, you should pick up running, or right. uh, what was another one? You've really impressed me in this class so far. Well, pretty ambiguous statements, and they're really race general and gender general and content specific. Um, or identity-specific, I should say. Uh, in that specific condition, participants who were higher in negative emotionality were more likely to perceive those ambiguous statements as harmful. So in other words, we had essentially told them to watch out for the possibility of right. being harmed, and right. lo and behold, they saw harm. And that, my speculation, of course, is that's exactly what could be happening in microaggressions workshops, that people come out of them primed to look for hostility in, in things that could be perceived that are ambiguous. And, of course, half of human communication is inherently ambiguous. Right. There's a ton of literature on right. this, well, the ambiguity. Our, of Our brains have evolved to pick up on different ambiguities. Yes. That's yes. where yes. evolution took over there. And with that same token, then, could some of these workshops, you know, based on the coddling idea be doing more harm than good, and it may make more sense for people to be exposed. And I don't even think exposed is the right way, because you never want to necessarily put people in bad situations, but more just, if we look at things generationally, there's still an older class of people that probably won't change, nor are we really as a society holding their feet to the fire in terms of making them change. And I think that that, that has kind of carried through history that this older generation tends to be more conservative. Yeah. And, and with that comes um, older ideas, as it yeah. may be, that it, are no, so, longer in, no longer in favor and no longer uh, It's so here. hard to know. It's so hard to tease apart what happens with age and what happens with generations. Right. right? And teasing those differences is really tough. And I, even listening the other day to um, Jonathan Haidt talking about uh, changes uh, since they published that book, Coming in the American Mind, and, and thinking about... Gen Z, it's Gen Z, right? Just coming into the workforce. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you ask employers, you know, what's going on? How are your employees working out? Or how come, how are your most recent graduates working out as employees? And, and if, if we had only known 10 years ago what we should have been asking right. and what data we should have been recording, then we could compare the data from then to the yeah. data now in right. terms of, you know, entitlement or needing mental health days or somebody said something that offended me and what was it exactly that was offensive right. like has the quality of what things that people have said or actually is our interpretation of the same thing changed since right. 10, 20, 30 years ago. 
I do know that most recently when my students have been asking, we went around campus and asked people for nominations of things that people said that were intentionally harmful and then things that people said to them that were harmful but they didn't mean it to be. Uh, there's a lot of overlap in our list, which means communication is inherently ambiguous. And I, I think you're in, you, you could be onto something in the possibility that what if, what if, what if our concern about microaggressions and offending people is actually shutting down communication and people are so afraid because communication is inherently ambiguous because they're so afraid of offending and because people are going out into the world taking it on bad faith in many ways that nobody's going to communicate with each other. Nobody's going to try. Right. And even... (laughs) Especially if they're told that intent doesn't matter. They can be like, well... It doesn't matter how I don't mean to offend. I really just want to say I like your hair... It's not that I didn't like it yesterday. I just really like your hair today. I swear I don't mean it as offense. I really did like it yesterday. Right. Like, if they're worried that they have to go into every conversation qualifying, qualifying. and qualifying and qualifying because intent doesn't matter, right? according to the microaggressions literature, then, then what happens? It just, we've come a long way from our childhood playgrounds where sticks and stones could break our bones, but words would never harm us. Well, maybe when they're directly harmful, we're ready to tackle them. And when we don't yeah. know how to tackle them, or we don't know really what they mean, we get really... Right. Or even just shrugging off a jerk, you know? like Yeah. 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 What a jerk. What... Right. Yeah. I, I just feel like... It's harder to shrug off a backhanded compliment. Well, and there are so many things that people are, to use another popular phrase, triggered by, <laughs> right. that it almost sets off an alarm that if they hear a certain connection of words or phrases... That means alarms and bells go off. I have to tell on this person, yeah, or I have yeah. to send them to HR, or I have to. Yeah. And and not to say that bad, bad behavior is bad behavior. I am not, especially if, if it's right. affecting right. people's performance. Uh, and you have, uh, right. but at some point, uh, it's just like where does it end? Where does it end? Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. I do. I I do. I'm reminded of your when you ask when you mentioned trigger. Triggered, and yeah. um, you know, for people perceiving everything as a micro. Oh, that's a microaggression. You can't say that. You can't say you got. Say you can't wear that hat that supports your favorite team because that's right. a that's a microaggression. You're right. not, you're, you're, insensitive to their. You're insensitive to their cultural yeah. heritage. There's a bit of concept creep. Everything is a con- yeah. Everything is a trigger. Right. Everything's a microaggression. Right, and same with it's a violent causing right. violence right. And, and so forth. So. Well, I don't think we're going to solve all these issues today, but um, I want to encourage everybody to run right out and read the Quillette article, which I'll link to in the show notes. But uh, Ms. April Blaskarichek, I want to thank you for kicking off season two of Dialogue on Dialogue. Thanks for having me. I look forward to bringing you back for your next six or seven Quillette articles that you uh, (laughs) have. So, all right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Dialogue on Dialogue Podcast. Well, it's no surprise, you see, that you've heard about me. But if I'd not did what I'd done,